0: The American Army liberated the Buchenwald Concentration Camp and discovered the boys living there. There was 1,000 boys under the age of 18 that had been shielded by the camps.
1: The place wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a place where people felt secure. So what did you do, you know, in this whole process? And then in the middle of there, right a couple blocks away, is a precinct. And so it becomes the, the, the fort that you charge.
2: That's author Susan McClellan and former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. I spoke with former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice in the latter part of 2020. I talked to him about his views on how the city was faring at the time. Norm wrote a book called Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of Civic Engagement. There are 15 candidates running for mayor of Seattle. I urge every one of them to read this book. It lays it all out. But first, author Susan McClellan wrote an immensely powerful book on the Holocaust. In 1945, 472 boys were liberated from the Nazi Buchenwald concentration camp. More than 60,000 people perished at Buchenwald during the war. What makes this book unique is, is that it's about one of the boys, Romick Washman, who was deemed hopeless after being liberated, but a rehabilitation center gave him and other boys the chance to live life again. The experience was captured in Susan's book, Boy from Buchenwald, the true story of a Holocaust survivor. Back with my interview with Susan McClellan in just a moment.
0: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit com. All one word.
2: I've read some about your background, and you're an author of numerous books. And it seems to me that a lot of your books really starts with people who are in a very terrible situation like this one. Somehow they overcome it and they become inspirational. It seems that that's a pattern to your books.
0: I became a book writer by fluke. I am a magazine writer by training newspaper and newspaper, a magazine writer by training. And the subject of one of my uh, articles asked me to write her book. And she was a child survivor of the Sierra Leone war. And, um, That book ended up going all over the world and sort of launched my career telling these types of stories, both for young adult and adult readership. And I'm very honored that people trust me with their stories to tell them this way.
2: This uh, Robbie Wiseman story that you uncovered, how did you find out about this and what led to you writing a book about this subject?
0: Well, a literary agent who uh, knew Robbie's story and knew Robbie also knew of my work and asked me to meet with Robbie, see if we were a good fit, and I felt we were a good fit right away, and that's how our collaboration came about. And uh, we live in different different places, so I flew out to Robbie and stayed with him and his family um, a couple of times to really get the story and be with them to tell the story.
2: Tell us a little bit about the story that occurred during the time that he was in these concentration camps and things. What stands out? We've seen other stories about this, and we don't certainly ever get tired of them because it was such a tragedy, the biggest tragedy of the 20th century, I would submit. What did you uncover about Robbie and his story that maybe we haven't heard before?
0: Actually, what drew me to Robbie's story was... The Moving forward, after the liberation, the Americans liberated, the American army liberated the Buchenwald concentration camp and discovered the boys living there. There was a thousand boys under the age of 18 that had been shielded by the camps underground. Um, it, it's the journey forward from there. And the boys in particular, the younger boys that went to France, that included Nobel Prize winner L.A. Uh It's it's their experience in France. Like they were written off. They were considered hopeless. Um, like you know, enfants terribles. Like you know, the terrible children in the media, because they were stealing and they were uh, beating each other up. And you know, they didn't they didn't have identities when they were liberated, and they languished at Buchenwalds for close to two months before the children's organization brought them to France. And so this is where it gets a little different than so many of the really important stories uh, about the Holocaust and child survivors that we've heard is even though, you know, I I weave in Robbie's backstory and his experiences both in Poland and in, in in the Holocaust, it's really about the movement forward for him and the other boys and how they healed how they were able to translate whatever experiences they had had through the Holocaust into finding meaning and value in their lives again. And the vast majority of those Buchenwald boys that did go to France they did so. They became, you know, incredible humanitarians, writers. Some were advisors to, you know, President JFK's advisor. One of them, I believe, was a Buchenwald survivor. Like we, these, these, they became really family men, uh, children, grandchildren, uh, very successful relationships. You know, how did this happen when, when people visiting the camp said, you know, they're not going to live very long and what lives they are going to lead, they're going to be so mentally unwell. Um, you know, how did they get to there? And, and that's what this story is, is, is the remarkable experiences of Robbie in France, uh, reflective of the other boys, too. And that's what drew me to it.
2: Is there like a percentage of, let's say, these young boys who were in the camp prior to getting out, that some, I would imagine, it probably didn't go in the middle of the road, that either really turned to a life of withdrawal and maybe crime, like was you described earlier, or did something extraordinary. There was nothing in between, or is that inaccurate?
0: I'm not the best one to speak about this. Dr. Robert Krell would, because he's a hidden, hidden child himself. He founded the good friend of, of Robbie's, a psychiatrist. Um, he has studied this. He would know closer to the statistics. But one of the things that he talks about is that the hidden children, which tended to be younger, and these were kids that the families would give to another a Christian family to watch or an orphanage, a Christian orphanage or whatnot, and survive have tended not to do as well as the Buchenwald boys. And people would think it would be the opposite. But Dr. Krell talks about really the formation of the human brain. And because the kids, the hidden children were so little, that they didn't have the foundations of strong family, language, you know, a cultural identity, the love. Whereas the Buchenwald boys, even though they're boys, they still had probably six to seven years of a really beautiful, tight-knit Jewish community and family. And by and large, that gave them more of a resiliency to experience what they went through than children that were uh, impacted much younger.
2: Robbie, he is in his 90s now.
0: He's 90. He turned 90 on February 1st.
2: 90 on February 1st. Okay. His story came out in the latter part of his life, and why did he wait so long?
0: He actually didn't wait that long. He started to go public with his story uh, through media when uh, a, Holocaust, a, a school teacher was teaching his students that the Holocaust was a hoax. Um, Robbie felt he owed it then to speak. Um, you know, Robbie will talk about how in the camps, they would say, if anyone survives this, they have to tell the story. Um, So part of it was Robbie felt it was time to go public. And, um, you know, he was there to sort of counter this Holocaust denier. Um, And then over the years, he was doing a lot of talks and public speaking um, around the countries. And uh, I think it was just finally he was ready to go a little deeper
2: you use the word hoax, and we're hearing that more and more, not only about this, but so many other things. So what important lessons can, let's say, a younger reader learn today from Robbie's story?
0: There's two things. I mean, I think younger readers, a sense of what they have that could offer them some resiliency. Um, you know, we have such huge numbers of, of young people uh, struggling with, pretty serious mental health issues, bullying, um, you know, uh, medications, the uncertainty, war, conflict. Um, reading stories like this might give them ideas of maybe let's turn this way, let's go this way, let's let go a bit and see if we can get some healing here or there. I hope that that inspires people to find meaning in their life when they're in their darkest moments, because it is there. Hopefully it's there. The other thing I hope people take away uh, is the real importance, importance of childhood development and that these boys from Buchenwald, um, they had something there that they could fall back on and um, to really value that time in the development of a child.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go about this book or anything you'd like to get across to the audience?
0: I'm just really honored to write these stories, and I just thank any, everyone who reads them. Um, I, I have said this for a long time. Like, I, just, I, I, I have great hope for humanity through these stories. Even though they're grim, we see the best of people through them, and we can all be like that. And right now, we're all struggling with something, so we need to be there for each other.
2: My thanks to Susan McClellan, author of Boy from Buchenwald. The True Story of a Holocaust Survivor. The book is available on all the usual book outlets, including Amazon. Or if you just want to Google Susan McClellan, and that's MC, capital C L E L L A N D, you can do that by just going to her
0: website. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist.
2: I spoke with Norm Rice, former Seattle mayor. He served in that capacity from 1990 to 1998. And uh, what I was talking to him about is the events that had just occurred in the summer of 2020 down in the CHOP area of Seattle. And we all know what occurred during that time. And I just wanted to replay the interview, particularly this part of it, because, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show... We have a mayoral race coming up this fall, and 15 candidates have filed for that position. And so I just wanted to replay what Mayor Rice thought about the events that occurred then, and I really believe that his summit that I talked about a little bit too, and a book that he wrote, Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of Civic Engagement, outstanding book, and I believe that every candidate for mayor should read this. Let's pick this interview up. As I asked him the first question about what did he think about the events that happened in CHOP? Looking at a real specific issue that we dealt with over the summer, and that is the protests and all the things that happened in the downtown core, what were you thinking during that
1: time? <laughs> Boy, you would ask that question. I never felt so much pain in my whole life than during this whole process, feeling a little more impotent, you know, what I mean? and I've been quiet. Because I don't like, I have not ever got on the air and criticized the mayor or the council or anything else. But I said it uh, earlier and I'll say it again. No one was healing, everybody was angry, but nobody was really trying to move in a more positive way. And we let it get away from us. I'm going to get in trouble with this, but he will say it The chop. Someone thought that was a good idea. But people died in the job. <laughs> people were raped in the job. The place wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a place where people felt secure. So what did you do, you know, in this whole process? And then in the middle of there, right, a couple blocks away is a precinct. And so it becomes the, the, the fort that you charge. You know, you could see the match and you could see the flame. And you knew what was going to happen. People were shot by police. You know, and if you try to take them separately as they are, the cumulative effect of it was beyond what I think anybody ever thought. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? A man in the South jogging gets shot by three people for no good reason. (laughs) Another man with a knee on his neck saying, I can't breathe. He dies. So, you know, and no one kind of figures out a way to temper it. Don't be surprised that you get this anger. And then... What makes it even more difficult is people who have other agendas can take advantage of that anchor. So what do you do? How do you come into that sphere and bring it down a notch and try to make something out of it? How do you bring a sense of community or regain a sense of community in where you want to go? Everybody has in, in a leaderless society that we are right now has an agenda how to do it, but they aren't doing anything to heal or bring people together. And that's the challenge. And I, I don't have an answer right now because the you can see it. I mean, I have friends in this whole pandemic world, as I call it, on every side of this issue. The anger, people who are angry because they can't see a way out. Everybody is trying to make, show that they understand everybody's feelings and pain, but they can't even come to a place where they say, where are we going? I once uh, performed in a, a satirical play back in my days when I had, and it was uh, called A Cross-Eyed Look at a Cock-Eyed World. And I really believe we're right there now. That's I, I know I wrote that down <laughs> when you said it the other day. I got it right there. Well, How would... do you get there? But where you got to get is a place where you're willing to listen and say, where is it that we want to go? Right now, people who aren't for that are winning that debate because they don't have to offer an alternative.
2: That's a very good point. This is me. I'm just going <laughs> to, an observation from the current administration where. Which one? <laughs> the one, right? Well, which uh, which one? I'm, I'm going to talk about the city of Seattle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, when Carmen Bass, the police chief, resigned. <laughs> After what the city council, which I don't even get into there, what they were trying to do in in that circumstance, Black Lives Matter and all this. And then, okay, let's cut 40 percent of the police chief's salary. But the lack of leadership going, she's not going anywhere. I'm the mayor. I'm not accepting her resignation. I'm in charge.
1: Boy, oh, boy, boy. But this is me. That's almost a two-day discussion. Okay. I I think really it's the dilemma that's all across the country that— our emotions are driving reasonable decisions and it's easy to play to the emotions than it is to come up with solutions. And that's, that's the problem. There's a whole line. I said it earlier. Some people would rather you hear their complaints and solve their problems. But right now, all we're doing is complaining. We're not coming up with solutions and the solutions are, are all about punitive, cut the police, you know, change this, change that without saying, what is it that we really want? Do we really want to do that? Yeah, I understand it. I mean, you know, uh, but, you know, it seems so simple. It's not that simple. Safe streets, safe passage, the kinds of things you need police for are important. If you're going to do these things, you really got to come up with some principles of uh, what is it that you want to keep? What do you want to protect? And how do you move forward? Don't cut the police by X amount and say somehow life is going to be better. I think they should have been cut by forty-eight <laughs> percent, and 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 so okay. And what are you going to do with the forty-eight percent? Well, the extra two percent goes to me or something. I don't know. But <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, you no. Know I'm, I'm saying you know. I'm saying, but that's exactly. why you need a bigger plan, right? If you're going to do this, you need to know where the investment's going to go, and will the investments improve the life that you say you want to help? Well, it needs another education summit type model. But if you do that, if you try to have a a summit. You've got to have some principles. Trying to come to a percentage cut of what the police ought to be is a, is is the wrong way to go about it. What is it that you want to protect? What is it that you need to preserve? What is it that was going to make people feel safe? Now, if you use those as your principles to go forward, I think people look at it differently. But if you look at everybody as the, the police is the enemy, there are a whole lot of other services that you need. And I can see where you might want to shift some things. But I don't think you ever want to say you're going to get rid of well, that many police officers. One thing just right. comes to me now
2: back to the Education Summit and what you did there is that you brought a lot of the departments into the fold, too. Like, for example, Metro isn't mm-hmm. uh, part of the city, but it's a county uh, jurisdiction at the time and still is. But Metro providing vouchers for students to go uh, and get on buses, go to museums and things. And they, so they were participating. Yep. And then what did you do with the? Departments of Recreation. You had them open up the ball fields, parks, and recreation. Well, so you de- got that par- buy-in too. Yeah,
1: every department had to come up with a a program to help schools and children. And and, and there's where their creativity went. I think right now, and you've said it better than I did. All we have is a way to cut, police, without a plan of where to invest. It doesn't make sense, right? Would be so uplifting
2: if we heard something or had you know some sort of sense that hey we're going to get through this and this is the city we're going to yeah. have once this th- gets through it we're going to get past it we don't seem to have
1: that so. no no I understand exactly what you say I that's why I say it's not easy right now you need a a kind of leadership that gives you comfort and we don't have that
2: I want to get into another area here and uh, <laughs> that is what I'm calling normisms or (laughs) philosophy. And there were certain things that just popped out at me that I think are worth talking about. And one is that you said, it's better to be roughly right
1: than precisely precisely wrong. wrong. Where did you come up with that one? So often elected officials and those who are involved want to come up with a perfect solution. And there's no such thing as a perfect solution. The real thing is when you come up with the solution, You have to show how you put what you heard into the program that you're directing. And so that doesn't mean that I do everything that you say, but I understand what you say. And I think that's what is a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. You can get to where most people want to go if you hear them. And when you put your plan together, you use their words for the things that you've done. Remember when we were at Mount Baker and we were talking about Playgrounds. You said X. I heard you, but the only way I could see how we could do it is to do that. Every time that you acknowledge that you heard somebody and you can show where you built it into your plan or not do what they said, but build in that thought, you build trust and you spend the time to go back to tell them what you did. So you just don't have a hearing and then go to the drawing board and then say, here it is. You say, am I doing it right? So you help ask people to help it be built. And that's part of what the Education Summit was. After a while, we started knowing what people wanted as the complementary element to education and the like. And then we could start to see what we could do.
2: My thanks to Mayor Norm Rice for spending time in Voices of Experience. And I know I am repeating this probably to agnosium for some. But I'm telling you, that book that he wrote about civic engagement Gaining Public Trust, a Profile of Civic Engagement by Norm, is really a blueprint for how you run a city. And um, I suggest you read it as a voter in this area, whether it's Seattle or outside. It really shows how it's done and done right. The book is available on Amazon. And again, I'm going to repeat one more time. This should be required reading for every mayoral candidate running for mayor of Seattle or any other person considering Public service. If you've been living around the Seattle area for 30 plus years, you probably remember the name of Pat O'Day. He was the uh, manager of KJR Seattle 95 when it was a incredibly popular station in this area and uh, it had an audience share of like close to 50 percent. I've interviewed Pat O'Day on my radio show before and uh, have played some of his great moments. But uh, unfortunately, he passed away about a year ago. But someone sent to me, Bob Brokaw, a friend of mine who lives in the San Juan Islands, just a little clip from Pat O'Day when he was talking about why radio has shifted so dramatically from, let's say, the late 1960s and 1970s up till now. This is what Pat had to say, and the person interviewing him was former King 5 TV anchor, mike james
3: but what congress did was they destroyed one of the greatest natural resources we had and that was local radio Uh, but they destroyed something else because so essential to our way of government uh, so essential to democracy is an informed electorate not just at the national level but at the local level because we elect our local leaders as well Yet, by eliminating local radio, by eliminating the requirement that all stations carry X amount of news every hour, those things were essential to informing not just the public, but informing young people. And I think that the deregulation of radio is one of the biggest single causes of the dumbing down of america where you can go out on the street and ask them who our secretary of state is or ask them who the vice president of the united states is and 30 percent will tell you they don't know america is being dumbed down and that problems started when the FCC and Congress foolishly deregulated radio. Radio, as I called it, a great natural resource because it informed the people, it informed the electorate, and it entertained, but also it did something else. It gave great service to the local community because it was local.
2: That, again, is Pat O'Day in an interview with Mike James in 2003. He could have had that interview yesterday. We've now seen a lot of what has happened in terms of our public body and the dumbing down of America and where we're at now with those words of warning that came 18 years ago. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Any comments about what you heard today? Call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425 653 1166. You want to comment about anything you heard about the show today or anything else for that matter, feel free to do so. Just keep your comments short. That's 425 653 1166. What is Voices of Experience all about? People with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, adventure and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. What drives this show? It's my belief that experience is our best coach. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks for listening. Quote of the week. I will give my opinion before I read it because I think this is the best definition of the role of government that I've ever heard. The moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick and the needy. Hubert H. Humphrey